0: Welcome to the program. It's a brand new week on the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And every weekday at 4 on AM 630, the Word, we're here to take your phone calls and answer your questions questions about the Bible, questions about our faith, what we believe, and why. Uh, Maybe you're dealing with something in your life and you want to know what the Bible says to do about it. We'll do the best we can to answer your questions. Here are our phone numbers for your live calls, 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us. By emailing questions at CalvarySA.com. We also have uh, the ability to ask those questions on our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call hands-free is to use the free KSLR mobile app, and you'll be connected directly to the studio. Hope you had a great uh, week in, weekend in church this weekend. We did. Uh, lots and lots of people. Some people got saved. Uh, Paul and I actually got to go to to uh, lunch with uh, a couple one of the 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 man gave his life to Jesus and was just became a believer Uh, really 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 neat stuff is happening and I pray that happened at your church as well Um, because it's Monday uh, we have our men's and women's and youth bible studies here tonight if you're interested seven o'clock ladies you can watch uh, at calvaryessay.com on the live stream feed it's always better to be here because then you can be part of the discussion, the questions that come afterwards. But um, tonight, Lachelle Ortiz will be teaching the ladies. Pastor Kin, uh, I would like to be a fly on the wall in Pastor Kin's study. He's teaching a men's only Bible study from Ephesians 5:22. Wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. So that's going to be an interesting one. Of course, Pastor Nelly is with the high school age youth in Genesis. All of that tonight at 7 o'clock. And of course, child care is provided. Uh, I want to remind you, and I'll do it every day this week uh, until we actually leave on Wednesday. And we'll be uh, live here for the Date Day Edition on Thursday. Then we go to the men's retreat. And we will be broadcasting live on Friday from the men's retreat, as we've done in years past. But we'd like to invite you. There's still time. We've got some space uh, still available. We keep it as cheap as we possibly can. But believe me, um, take this time away just for you and Jesus, men. um, And I I promise you, he wants to speak to you. Uh, These retreats are often life-changing events. In fact, they always will be if you allow it to be. Um, but this is an opportunity. Um, don't worry that if you don't know anybody here. If you want to come, you will be comfortable immediately and you will be blessed. Lots of food, of course, um, but but the real food is the word of God. Um, Pastor Tim Burns from Calvary Chapel in Tyler, Texas, a dear, dear friend of mine, is going to be doing the majority of the teaching. I'll be teaching once, but he'll be teaching four times uh, this week. And then he's going to be live uh, here with us uh at uh, Calvary Chapel on uh Sunday as well we we typically have the pastor from the men's retreat uh who will do the the Sunday services here so uh all of that's going on we'd love for you to come if you want some information uh call the church office at 658-8337 or you can go to our website uh I can you sign up on the website for the Okay, you can't sign up on the website, but the information is there. But 658-8337, we'd love to have you, uh, and you will be blessed, I promise. Now, I want to get a little bit more serious now about something before we get into some questions. Remember, we um, love your live calls. It's always a more interesting program when you're engaged. I've asked you to pray, oh, now for quite some time. For a man who feels like a friend, he's not really a friend because we've never met um, but uh, Nabil Qureshi, um, he's written a couple of best-selling books um, from from being a Muslim to finding Jesus. Um, uh, my exposure to Nabil was with uh, the the RZIM ministry, Reverend Zacharias International Ministries. Uh, he was one of their apologists and um, uh, uh, really a treasure of stuff on YouTube and and uh, from at the RZIM website. Um, on Saturday. Um, This weekend, uh, Nabil, after battling um, a very aggressive form of stomach cancer, went to be with Jesus. His body died. And I want you to think for a moment, as sad as that is for us, your Bible says that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Nabil's homecoming was glorious, and he left this body the instant this physical body gave out, the real Nabil inside him was in the presence of the Lord. So I want to thank you for your prayers. Um, If people stop me on the streets and ask me how he's doing, um, uh, the prognosis was always very, very grim. He was 34 years old. He was married and had a three-year-old daughter. Um, His parents are still Muslims, um, and uh, they're hurting. And we would pray that uh, now for not only the parents to get saved, but that Nabil's wife and three-year-old daughter uh, would experience the peace that passes understanding from the Lord so um, I highly recommend uh, any of the question and answer sessions he did uh, the messages that he's given um, YouTube again just put in the search blank nabil Qureshi, and uh, and you will be blessed uh, the work that he did for the Lord will live on for a very very long time again thank you for your prayers um, this was a little more personal for me than maybe it even ought to have been, um, but when you listen to somebody enough, um, you're blessed. And I hardly recommend the RZIM Rev Zacharias International Ministries to anybody uh, who is uh, looking for good resources. Okay, one more time, three four zero. Oh, I'm I'm telling. I'm supposed to, to uh, spell Nabil Qureshi. N a b e e l q u e r e s h i. for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our email inbox. This is from AA. AA always answers, really asks really great questions. Pastor Ron, Exodus 4 has a bizarre section stuck in the middle of this great passage of Scripture. I'm speaking about verses 24 through 26. Evidently, Moses had neglected his duty to circumcise his son. Uh, Zipporah had to do this, and they and threw it at Moses' feet. Why is this important to know at this point in the narrative? Did Moses have more than one son? Are we told his name? How old was he? Do we know if Moses was circumcised? Since Pharaoh had ordered the, number of all, ordered the murder, rather of all baby boys, would his parents have followed the Jewish custom? And risked having their son killed. This may be a subject you'd rather not discuss with radio audience. A. A, 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 I. There's really almost nothing that I won't discuss with the radio audience. So, uh, if you're wrestling with this question, so too are others. Uh, we do know from Exodus chapter 18 uh, the names of his sons. Um, Exodus 18 indicates very clearly that uh, verse three or verses three and four. Um, After Moses sent away his wife's support, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One was named Gershom, for Moses said, I've become an alien in a foreign land. And the other was named Eleazar, for he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword. So we know the names of of his children. Those were his two sons uh, from uh, this particular woman. And the reason it was such a bone of contention is this. God would have told Moses, uh, Moses was circumcised, to be sure, uh, God would have told Moses um, when he called him to go uh, to see Pharaoh, uh, set my people free was the message. Um, God would have told him that, that you have to circumcise your own sons. Now, this goes into the category AA of to whom much is given, much is required. Moses was given a special audience with God. He saw Jesus in the burning bush. He heard the voice. Uh, he was used by God to accomplish marvelous things, and there was even greater things yet to come as he delivered the people of Israel. And God wanted, expected the people, given such uh, 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 responsibility, uh, to be obedient, to guard their walk with the Lord. And so what God would have told them, we don't have a record of this conversation, but it's very, very clear that you have to have your sons circumcised. You're in... Um, my service, you have to have your son circumcised, and that's exactly uh, what, what uh, Moses should have done. Now, the problem is that his wife, who was not Jewish, as along with the rest of the, the civilization at that point, they thought circumcision was barbaric, and she refused to, to have her son circumcised. And in Exodus chapter 4, he's on his way to Egypt, and Jesus, as the angel of the Lord, but make no mistake, it's Jesus, appeared and was going to kill him. Again, it sounds so harsh to us, but this is again, to whom much is given, much, and I will add, much more is required. So he couldn't begin to serve God without personally being obedient, without having his family being obedient. And when his wife saw that Jesus really was going to kill him, she took a flint knife, And she did it herself, and she said, this is a religion of blood, is basically what she was saying. And she threw the foreskins of her sons at Moses' feet. Now, that's the reason it was important. Now, here's the import for us. We can't pretend we're serving God if we're not being obedient to God personally. And every Jewish male was to be circumcised. This whole episode is going to be repeated at the end of the 40-year wilderness because the people born in the Exodus wilderness weren't circumcised, so they would have to do that before they could enter into the promises of God. There is no promise of God that we're going to enter into unless and until we are obedient in our own walk. And again, Moses was given great, great privilege and power, and so there was also great accountability. And this was eventually what separated Moses and his wife. That's when she left him, took the boys back with, uh, to, to her home, uh, to her father. Um, the, the good part of the story is that, that Jethro would later, in Exodus chapter 18, after hearing all that God had done through Moses, he would bring the wife and the sons back. And they would be reunited. And I think the the, the moral for us, A, there is fairly straightforward. What we need to do is be absolutely sure that our families are covered by the blood of Jesus. We don't know how old uh, the children were at that point. We're not told that. We just know their names. So I hope that answers your question three four zero ninety five eighty five let's go to austin now and talk with robert on line one robert thanks for calling you're on the air
2: thanks brother ron got a quick question for you so the the wise men of the east the magi is there places in scripture that indicate they knew where and when to come see the lord when he was born
0: Well, uh, no, there isn't. Um, However, we know that they were were given a star to follow. And the Magi, um, these would have been Babylonians. These are the kind of of, uh, the group of people to whom Daniel... Uh, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego belonged. Uh, these were the best of the best in Babylon, and and they were the the scientists of the day. And they studied the stars and they looked for signs and what God did in 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 putting the star in the sky for them to follow to come to Bethlehem. Um, that was the the, uh, the 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 sort of their source of direction. Uh, I think it's significant, Robert, that. That um, the the Magi and and there were probably a bunch of them, not just three. The way we read the story, there was three Magi, uh, three wise men, but but there there was probably an entire caravan of them. Uh, And uh, I, I think the value of the story for us is that God sent word of his son's birth to Gentiles, to non-Jews and that's sort of a precursor of of the fact that Jesus came to die for the sins of the whole world so um, they're very mysterious
2: I'm sorry, go ahead
0: no, no. I'm just saying that they, they they weren't these mysterious people. They they weren't. Uh, they they were the scientists of the day, and they were wise. They were rich, uh, and they used their wisdom wisely. They 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 got a sign from God, and they followed that sign.
2: So they weren't looking at anything in the Old Testament that indicated you know timing, or it was just a it was just a heavenly star that drew them
0: yes it, it was the star now, make no mistake. they would have had the Old Testament scriptures, which would have indicated um um th- that they were going to Bethlehem now, whether or not they had the ability to discern that Bethlehem was going to be the place where the Christ was born or or even if they knew we don't know if they even knew that what they were going. they just knew that a king had been born, and that was what the signs in the stars uh told them but but um th- there's no um uh, there's no reference at all in the Old Testament to the timing of the birth of the Messiah, so they wouldn't have had that indication at all.
2: But there is an indication in there that he is, that he would be born in Bethlehem.
0: Yeah, and and again, I, I, they they could have discerned that, but we we don't know how um, what their ability to understand what the scriptures were. I mean, even the Jews didn't understand that uh, the, the messianic passages of scripture. Um, and that's in large part why they missed the Lord. So we don't know what the Babylonians did. What we do know is that it was really the, the signs in the sky and the stars that led them to the place of Bethlehem. Now, I would like to think, and, I, and, and this is just sheer speculation, but as they set out... Uh, to to find uh, the source of this star to to get to that location Uh, I would like to think that they would have studied the Old Testament scriptures and maybe the realization about uh, who they were going to see would have set in but we just don't have that information uh, specifically so we can't be dogmatic about it
2: well what scriptures do indicate that it would be that he would be born in Bethlehem what what prophecy Uh, or what
0: well everybody knew yeah, the, the, we we know that he was coming from It um, um, uh, talks about uh, oh, out of you, O Bethlehem, will come a star. Uh, but but it's it's pretty was pretty widely known that that he was going to be a descendant of King David, uh, and and he would be from David's hometown. Uh, Bethlehem Ephrathah was was the the place. So um, if, if you'll just Google, and I don't I'm not looking at my Bible right now, Robert. But if you'll Google. Uh, Bethlehem in, the, in, in all the books of the prophecy, uh, you'll see uh, all of the references to Bethlehem. Okay.
2: Thank you, Pastor Ron.
0: My pleasure, Robert. God bless you. Thanks very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Um, here's a question from our email inbox uh, from Nacho. Uh, Hi, Pastor Ron. Revelation question again. Uh, what is the significance of the specific mention in Revelation 19:20 20 of the Antichrist and the false prophet being thrown alive into the fiery lake? Will the Antichrist and the false prophet suffer in bodily f- uh, form compared to all the others who are judged and suffer that same fate in spiritual form? Um, a couple distinctions here, Nacho. First, uh, they were thrown alive, uh, but, but our physical bodies uh are not fit for eternity, so there would have been a transformation uh their spiritual bodies that, that, that could that could accommodate eternity that could accommodate the torture so it's not that they're going to be in in the fire in in, a, in the same physical bodies uh, that they walked the earth in um, uh, as opposed to everybody else um, everybody who rejects jesus is going to be thrown uh, into the fire how however um, we don't know uh, or, I mean we do know for sure that that our physical bodies can't uh, are not suited for eternity um, so what we don't know is what our spiritual bodies are going to be like even in heaven we know that we'll be like Jesus uh, those who are thrown in the lake of fire won't. The real significance of this is that uh, the Antichrist, the man that we call the Antichrist and the false prophet will be all alone completely together in the uh, lake of fire uh, for 1,000 years before others joined them at the end of the millennial reign of Christ on earth. That's very important to understand. Can you imagine the man who ruled and reigned with an iron fist, the man who demanded to be worshiped, the one who uh, set up the abomination that causes desolation during the Great Tribulation uh, and and uh, we're all going to see him. Uh, Revelation 19 is when we come back uh, with the Lord. Uh, and those who are here on earth who were terrified of him, um, they're going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And uh, the false prophet and the antichrist are going to be the first two occupants of that for 1,000 years. Pretty frightening thing. You know, we have had a whole bunch of questions of late, not just about revelation, but about uh, what eternal torment uh, is going to be like. And and I hope that the reason for this is that um, we're starting to, to, to all of us share Jesus' heart for judgment. Isaiah 28 says that judgment is a strange work to God. He doesn't want to do it. And when we contemplate... The, the severity and the eternality of hell, the, the, the gnashing of teeth, the wailing and pain and torture. Uh, I, my prayer is that, that we'll all be more vo- motivated to share the truth of Jesus Christ with those who are lost and hurting. We, we have to be aggressive. We need to be bold. So, Nacho, that's the significance, that they're going to be there all alone. You know what I think is sort of ironic, is that the the Antichrist hates the false prophet, even though the false prophet was sort of his shill. He hated, he hated religion. He always has. And he didn't want to share any attention that the false prophet would come. So, um, what's going to happen? They're going to find themselves all alone together in the lake of fire for a thousand years before the rest of those who are judged at the great white throne judgment join them in that place. So I hope that answers your question. Thank you very, very much. Um, 3409585, here's a question from Richard. Richard says, there's a scripture in the New Testament where Jesus said he will separate the goat from the sheep and deal with each one accordingly. Uh, I think you're talking about the, I know you're talking about the the, uh, the Olivet Discourse, I, I think this is uh, Matthew chapter 25, um, um, and he says, I'm paraphrasing of course, is this going to be done before or after the rapture? And, and do the goats, does the non-believer, have a chance for reprieve, so to speak, afterwards, after the rapture? I heard a pastor who says that even after the rapture, those who accept the mark of the beast will still have a chance to accept Jesus. I think it's not true. If I understand the teachings I've heard pertaining to the subject, God bless you. God bless you, Richard, for studying your Bible. Uh, the pastor who said that, shame on him. Um, uh, once you take the mark of the beast, your fate eternally is sealed. Everybody who takes the mark of the beast, everyone who takes the mark of the beast, is going to know what they're doing. They're going to be making a conscious choice and their fate for eternity is sealed and there is no change. Now, all of this is going to happen during the Great Tribulation, which means it's going to happen after the the Rapture of the Church. So, remember, it's the Rapture, the Great Tribulation, Jesus returns with you and me, uh, he destroys his enemies and then he establishes his kingdom on the earth for a thousand years. So um, we won't see any of this. Uh, when Jesus is talking about the goat and the sheep, he's not talking about individuals, believers and unbelievers. Literally, he's talking about nations and he's going to separate them based on how they treated um, Jesus or the, the, his people, the Jews. So. Um, the separation of the sheep and the goats, the sheep from one side, they will have an opportunity, those who survive the Great Tribulation, to go into the millennial reign those who do not will be judged at the great White Throne judgment. it is matthew twenty five thirty one through thirty three So I hope that answers your question. Um, grace uh, with follow-up question, will the people be aware that they're choosing the mark? That's how I started uh, the 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 answer grace when When people take the mark, uh, those who don't will be beheaded. Those who refuse, others will um, take the mark, and they will do so knowing that they are making a choice. And that's when their hearts are irrevocably hardened. So, uh, yes, they will know. Nobody is going to be surprised. I'm glad you asked the follow-up question, though, Grace, because uh, I had somebody in church this, this, this Sunday talk about how the chips are being manufactured uh, for the foreheads and for the back of hands. Well, that's technology we've had for a long time. Um, uh, but but the, the thing that we have to understand, because I get questions about people who say, well, well I don't want to take that technology because that might be the mark of the beast. No, when you take the mark of the beast, you will know it, you will choose it, and again, I say your fate will be sealed. Nobody's going to take the mark of the beast accidentally or unaware. So we don't have to worry or be afraid of technology. Uh, about a year or so ago, there was a story in our city where a lady was fired because she refused to take uh, or have a chip implanted that would be the ID that they were using for security reasons at work. And she said, no, my religion forbids it. Well, it doesn't at all. You're not going to take the mark of the beast unaware. Hope that answers your question. Hey, we're inside. um, You hear the music? So we got 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. You're listening to the Word to Center for Life. We'll be back in two minutes.
1: to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
0: Welcome back to the second half of the Monday edition of the program. Hey, I I just got some information about the men's retreat. So men, if you want to go, you can sign up uh, at the retreat itself. It's at Camp Buckner uh, in the Marble Falls area. Uh, you can pay there, no problem. Uh, we do want you, however, to call the church office so that we can make sure that there's plenty of room for you to get a registration and a name tag. And please, 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 uh, if if you've got the time, uh, you've got a few bucks to spare, uh, the Lord will really bless you, and you will meet some of the greatest men in the history of the world at that retreat. Um, you can also register here at church on Wednesday night. So uh, if you want to stop by and visit, we'd love to do that. Okay, one more time, Three four zero ninety is a question from Robbie. He says, Pastor Ron, how old should you be before being a pastor? Robbie, there's no answer to that question because there's no age limit. Um, wh- what we're told is we shouldn't lay hands on somebody that is to, to ordain them. Um, suddenly, they, they have to be a mature believer. Um, I know ma- mature believers who are, are in their teens. Uh, I know uh, immature believers who are in their 70s and 80s. So um, there's, there's no age limit. The, the thing that needs to be stressed here is that it has to be a call of God. Um, a friend of mine, um, uh, a dear friend, um, he has uh, two sons who uh, were pastors of churches um, uh, one in their uh, mid-twenties. Uh, another was actually ordained at his own church as a, as a 19-year-old right after high school graduation. Uh, and that young man has a very successful ministry. He's been walking with the Lord for a long time um, and doing a good job. So um, I, I, there's no limit. The limit is, are you called and are you ready? Uh, so if you're a young man, Robbie, and you're asking this question Um, you know, you can start right now, start right now. It doesn't mean you'll be a pastor right now, but, but fall in love with God's word, devour the Bible. It ought to consume you and then share your faith with others. So do the work now. If you are involved in a church, and by the way, if you're not involved in a local church, you're probably not called to be a pastor. If you're involved in a local church, go to your pastor and let him know what you feel like your calling is is all about and then say, how can I help you do what God has asked you to do? So learn to serve. I think that's the thing that we don't recognize about the call to be a pastor, um, a shepherd. That's what, what a pastor is. And shepherds are servants. And to be able to, to, to serve others joyfully Wanting nothing in return is a lesson that every pastor has to learn. You know, being a pastor is not just standing up and giving messages or teaching the Bible. It's certainly not um, wearing expensive clothes and having everybody think you're gifted or anointed. The pastor with God's heart is a pastor who serves. A pastor who loves. A pastor who practices what he's going to be preaching for years and years and years. So, Robbie, if you're called to be a pastor, uh, go for it. Start now. It is the best life ever. Now, I'm a little biased because that's what my calling is all about. But um, don't hesitate. Just dig in and let the Lord begin to direct your steps. And when you're ready, He'll put you in front of people. Don't try to do it on your own. He'll put you in front of people. It's a great life, Robbie. I hope it works out. 340-9585. Here's a question from Randy. Uh, Pastor On I saw a YouTube video exposing pastors for their lavish lifestyles. Um, one had a jet. Uh, others just lived in in uh, lavish lifestyles. I was taught that God wanted us to be wealthy, so what's wrong with pastors who are rich? Well, Randy, what you were taught is wrong, and that's what's wrong with pastors being rich. Now, um, pastors don't have to be poor. I, I want to make that clear. But when you were taught by somebody that God wants you to be wealthy, you were in a place, we call it a, a prosperity gospel, uh, of health and faith those kind of things. And and, and it's just a a lie. Uh, It's not true, and that's the damage. If God wanted everybody to be rich, um, what, what about the people who are serving him faithfully and have always served him faithfully who aren't? And I can substitute healthy and well. You know, the truth is that God wants us to serve. Peter says that we're not to serve out of greed, but we're to do it, not lording it over the flock but serving as an example to the flock and Randy the, the pastors who taught you that God wanted you to be rich weren't representing God in fact they were misrepresenting God and every time we have these news stories coming out that expose pastors for their lavish lifestyles it is a blight on the name of Jesus it is an offense to the church of God and uh, it it's frustrating it makes me angry um, at the same time, we need to remember that in those churches, there are people like you, Randy, who are, are, are true Christians, but they, they're being taught a lie. And we want to expose people so that they don't believe the lie. God doesn't want us to be wealthy. He wants us to be who he's called us to be, servants of the people he loves. Let me say one thing about pastor's salaries. Randy, every pastor should live sort of at the median level of the church they serve. You know, if the city of San Antonio, as an example, um, has a median income of $100,000, and I don't think that's the case by far, but just to to make the math easy for me, uh, then the pastors who serve here ought to live at that level, no higher uh, or no lower. There are some pastors that God has to make uh, exceptional sacrifices. So I'm not talking about them. But for a pastor who's to serve his flock, to live a lifestyle, a lavish lifestyle, far above the means of his flock, how is he ever serving them? When especially that money comes from them. And when you're looking at those videos, those exposés, and you see these pastors who... All they can say is no comment when somebody sticks a microphone and asks them about their lavish jet or their lifestyle. They're they're hurting the cause of Christ. They're ripping off the people of God, fleecing the flock instead of feeding the flock. So God doesn't want pastors to be wealthy, Randy. He wants them to be servants with his heart. And you know what the truth is? Don't tell my church this but I'd do this for nothing. I really would. This is the best life imaginable. And God has always provided. What we need to do is be sure that we're not stealing from Him. Remember it was Judas who was stealing from the money bag? These pastors who are living lavish lifestyles are stealing from the money bag. It's God's money. And we need to understand that don't get caught Randy, in a prosperity church. Don't get caught up in it. We all want to be rich, to be sure, but what we need to want is to serve the Lord. So be careful if you're still in that church, Randy. You need to leave. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Jesse. He wants to know, uh, how can Pharaoh be responsible if it was God who hardened his heart? Well, Pharaoh's responsible because if you read the, 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 the narrative closely, Jesse, Pharaoh hardened his heart. He did it seven times. Over and over, Moses said, let my people go. Over and over, Pharaoh said no. No. The Lord God of Israel says, Let my people go. Who is the Lord of Israel to me? Pharaoh said. And he hardened his heart. There were times when the plagues that came against Egypt were so severe that he relented, at least on the surface, and and said, Okay, you can go. And he tried to negotiate, you'll, you'll know the story, with Moses. And every time Moses said, No, God doesn't negotiate. And then he would harden his heart again and go back on his word seven times seven in the bible is the number of completion and his heart was completely given over to wickedness and so when it says that god hardened his heart jesse it means that god gave him over to his own heart god stopped working in his heart god stopped calling him he crossed that line and was forever condemned So why was he responsible? Because God told him what to do. He didn't care what God told him to do. Even when he knew it was God and his God, uh, gods, little g gods, couldn't measure up to the God of Moses, he still didn't surrender his will to the will of God. That's what happens when we harden our heart against God. Jesse, by the way, that same dynamic is true of everybody who still lives today. God is going to call us. He's going to reach out for us. And the more we say no to him, the harder our hearts become, and the harder it becomes to say yes to God the next time he asks. It's always easier to say no because you've been saying no. And there's a point, we don't know where it is, where we've committed the unpardonable sin, blasphemy the Holy Spirit, And we've committed it by rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So, Pharaoh is completely responsible. It wasn't God who said, Okay, Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason. I'm going to harden your heart so you don't have a choice. Any more than Judas didn't have a choice because it was prophesied that he would be the one who would betray Jesus. They made those choices. And they made those choices when their hearts were hardened beyond redemption. For us to say, we just need to be sure that we don't get to that place. 3409585, Mrs. T says, what specific dating advice could you give an 18-year-old college-age young man for keeping the relationship pure? Uh, and then she says, both of them are believers. Um, Mrs. T., thanks for asking the question. It's really important. The only way they can resist the temptation is to keep Jesus right in the middle. They've got to love Jesus more than they love uh, the gratification of their flesh. Um, If Jesus is at the center of the relationship, and by that I mean they ought to be praying together um, in, in a protected environment. Praying can be very intimate. So praying in a protected environment, they ought to be reading the Word together. Um, growing together, especially if uh, this relationship is going to go anywhere, leading uh, potentially to marriage, um, they'll find out. If they're in the Word together, they'll find out. Now, I'm not thrilled with the idea of dating in the sense that uh, I'm just dating. You know, if this is uh, one girl I'm dating or one guy I'm dating, but but there could be others. Uh, I don't think Christians... I call it sport dating. I don't think Christians on a sport date. now. I understand that when people are attracted to each other to get to know one another, they have to do that by, by what our culture calls dating. So I'm not advocating a no-dating stance, so I don't want to be misunderstood. But when real believers, I mean real believers, are interested in one another, they need to have a sit-down, and I would I, I, I would recommend that they do it with their pastor. Have a sit down and say, okay, where is this going? Am I looking for a permanent relationship? Um, What's the timetable for marriage? And I mean, we don't have to set a date. That's not what I'm talking about. But uh, a a man needs to say, I'm looking for a a woman who loves Jesus as much as I do. Or the woman would say, I'm looking for a man who loves Jesus more than I do. And when I find that person, then we're going to be headed to marriage. The dating process should be used to determine whether or not that's the case. But once they determine, yeah, I, I, I like or I love this person, then Jesus has to stay at the center of it. If Jesus, especially when they're college age, um, when... If Jesus isn't at the center of the relationship, they're going to give in. That's what the world around us teaches. It's okay. It's no big deal. It's just sex. Unless Jesus is in the middle of that, they're going to fall to that temptation. So... They need to be active in their churches. They need to be in the Word of God together. Um, they, they can have fun together and all that's great. They need to protect, though, themselves from places of temptation. They need to protect themselves from circumstances where they might be tempted. Um, I am not a legalist in the sense that they, you know, they shouldn't hold hands, they shouldn't kiss, they shouldn't do those things, but they have to guard that line that only they know Only they know what that line is so that they don't go beyond. And if two young people who love Jesus are dating, believe me, the devil is going to be trying to mess with them and get in the middle of it because he wants to spoil their their witness. He wants to spoil any possibility of God putting these two together. So I would ask them, Mrs. T how serious they are. What do you think about this girl? Um, Let me give you a couple of practical things we do here at church because when we have kids, we've been around long enough that kids have been born and and raised in this church, and so they're grown up, but when they go away to college or Bible college or even into the workplace and they start looking like, well, there's a boy in my life or there's a girl in my life uh, we bring them to the church, and my first word, especially to the young men my first word is, oh you're the young man she's interested in, yes, and and I'm interested in her, and I will say we love her very much and the message of them communicating is that, that uh, we're going to be watching, not in a bad way or a negative way, but we're going to be watching. And by and large, Mrs. T, the girls that have brought men they're interested in here, um, God was leading and guiding their steps, and he brought treasures to them. Tell the young woman... She needs to wait for the man who loves Jesus with all of his heart and soul. Don't settle for less. Tell the young man that he needs to be that man for this girl because that's what God wants for her. Jesus, first and always. I hope that makes sense to you. It's a little old-fashioned. When people say that's old-fashioned, I always say it's okay because God is old. So, um, And what you can do for this young man that you care about is pray, pray, pray. If They go to university. Uh, they're going to have their faith ripped to shreds before their very eyes. They have to stay close to Jesus just for living or for dating. So, Mrs. T, I hope that helps a little bit. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585. I, I'm laughing briefly because we have so many who have been in that very position for a long time. Um, these kids are treasures. And God has a plan for them. And the enemy's going to try to destroy that plan. So uh, they've got to keep Jesus close. Otherwise, they're going to be won over by the world. They need to spend more time with their Bibles than they do with anything else. They need to be firm and grounded in the faith so that nobody can steal it from them. And in the case of dating, where when they are in a position where they're tempted and they will be, but they have to be like Joseph and run away from that place because how could I do this thing and sin against God? And then you can pray for them a whole bunch, Mrs. T. Thank you. Here's a question from Jackson. Jackson says, what does it mean to have a name taken out of the book of life as Revelation 3, 5 says. Jackson, I'm going to ask you to read that passage um, a little more closely. It doesn't say the name will be taken out of the book of life, does it? This is the church, the letter to the church at Sardis. And what Jesus tells John is that he will never blot out his name from the book of life. But instead, we'll acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. Now, you to think about that for a moment. We automatically assume, because he makes this promise, I'll never blot out his name from the book of life, that there must be some names he blots out of the book of life. But it doesn't say that. So, this is the greatest level of security that we can possibly have. Once we're saved, I mean really saved, not just had an emotional experience with God, but... Once we're born again, once our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, there's no erasers, there's no whiteout in heaven. Your name is there. The Holy Spirit is given to you as a seal guaranteeing your uh, 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 guarantee as a as a deposit rather, guaranteeing your inheritance in heaven. And the security that we have is Jesus says that name is permanent; it will never be blotted out. We need to be careful what we read and how we read it. Because this is a question I get from time to time. People say, well, he blots people's names out of the book of life. How do I know I won't lose my salvation? The Bible never says he blots anybody out of the book of life. It only says he will never blot them out. And that is real security. So, uh, Jackson, I hope that makes sense to you. Here's a question from Andrew. Why did God let the devil attack Job? Andrew, the entire book of Job is about this question, why? And the one thing that is conspicuous by its absence from the book of Job is the answer to that question. God is basically saying, look, I have a plan. I am sovereign. I do what needs to be done for the welfare of my people. And he never answers the question. He doesn't answer the question of Job's miserable friends. He doesn't answer Job's question. When Job starts to sort of self-righteously proclaim uh, that, that all of these things are unfair, God, why are you doing this? And Job comes to the conclusion that, you know, before I'd only heard about you, but now I've seen you. So there's no reason why. Um... You know, I've always said that I would prefer my name never come come up in a conversation between the devil and Jesus. But Job's did. Job was righteous and the enemy was trying to attack. And for reasons that, that aren't explained, for reasons that we can't understand, at some point it served God's purpose, Andrew, to let the devil have his way with the exception of you can't kill him killed his family, he lost his fortune, he suffered beyond anything that we can imagine, but the devil had limits and somehow it worked out together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Now did it work out well for Job? The answer is yes and no. It worked out well for Job because Job's faith was tested. And he passed the test. It worked out well for Job in the sense that what he lost, he received a double portion of. But it didn't work out well for Job because he still lost. He lost his children. He lost friends. Those are things that you never get over. But Job said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I think sometimes, Andrew, we have the impression that God is to protect us from those attacks. God never promised to do anything but be with us in difficult times. So, there's no answer to your question. I don't know why God let the devil. I don't even know why God talks to the devil. All we know is that he did. How are we doing on time? We got time for calls? Nope, we don't. Have one more question, I guess. Um... Danny, here's one I can, this is a personal one I think, Danny. Do you ever worry about getting burned out in ministry? What would you do if that happened? Well, Danny, if I, no, I don't worry about getting burned out. Um, if I was burned out, it would be because I was trying to serve in my own strength instead of the power of God. And I want to be as brutally honest as I can. I get tired. My heart gets broken. There are times when I think I can't take one more piece of bad news. The stress at times is overwhelming, whether it's, it's the, the burden of the church. That's what Paul called it. For us, it's a glorious burden. But make no mistake, it's a burden. We watch people's lives fall apart. We deal with it. Our particular church, Calvary Chapel, the financial pressure here never stops. We've never had enough money. We never let our needs be known. God's asked us to do that. Um, we, We don't ask people for money. And at the same time, the burden financially is overwhelming. Everything that we do for free. And so there's times I feel exhausted physically, spiritually, and emotionally. But that's when you go back to the well of the living water and drink. So, no, I don't worry about getting burned out. I don't have any plans to retire. I'm just going to keep serving Jesus as long as I have the privilege of doing it. I hope that makes sense to you, Danny. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Thanks for the calls, the good questions. You've been listening to The Word of Stand Up For Life. Tonight, our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies. Lachelle Ortiz teaching the ladies at 7 o'clock. Child care is provided. Lord willing, I'll be back on the station at 4 o'clock tomorrow. See you then. God bless.